This is the happiness quotient. If you're a first-time listener or regular listener of the happiness quotient, please be sure to subscribe wherever you may be listening, whether on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora. And when you subscribe, you'll be notified each time a new episode is released. And when you leave a review for the podcast on Apple Podcasts, it helps us become more visible so that people you care about can discover us. While you're at it, share your favorite episode with a friend or family on social media or by word of mouth. Do you think you have what it takes to climb Mount Everest? Did you ever think about what it might be like? And if you did it, would you kill a bunch of brain cells and come home different? Or maybe not come home at all? Fact is, today's guest feels that a person of moderate physical capacity and good health could take on the Big E given the right conditions with the use of bottled oxygen. He also says that to climb Everest, it really helps to have been born with what he calls the stupid gene. The quality of being able to suffer for long periods of time, even willingly, in order to achieve a goal. Today's guest on the Happiness Quotient is Dr. Peter Hackett. He literally wrote the book on altitude sickness. It's called Mountain Sickness Prevention, Recognition, and Treatment. It's an American Alpine Club Climber's Guide. Peter is no ordinary doctor. He's a mountaineer. He climbed Everest in 1981 as a member and doctor on the American Medical Expedition, and when he summited, he was the 111th person ever to get to the top. It was well before the first guided expedition changed the game, and it was also before more than one team was allowed on the same route. I first met Peter in 2000. We were working on a documentary for PBS Nova called Deadly Ascent, a film endeavoring to solve the mystery of high-altitude deaths on one of the most dangerous mountains on Earth, Denali in Alaska. I was the high-altitude cinematographer, and Peter was the main character, the doctor, the consultant of the film. We were there to chronicle the entire season, ready to capture daring mountain rescues and emergency medical evacuations. In 2007, Peter founded the Institute for Altitude Medicine in conjunction with the Telluride Medical Center and the University of Colorado to provide clinical care and consultation, conduct research, and develop educational programs to optimize health as well as treat medical issues affecting people who either live at or travel to high altitudes. Hint, hint, anybody going to Mount Everest might want to look this guy up. Fast forward to 2019, I was on Mount Everest again, filming Lost on Everest for National Geographic. And while at 21,000 feet, the evening before leaving for the team's final summit bid, I began to show some signs of an altitude-induced TIA, a trans-ischemic attack. Basically, it's like a minor stroke that goes away. The symptoms, for me, were minor. Numbing of the face, primarily. And more than 7,000 miles away, Dr. Peter Hackett was summoned via my climbing partner, Mark Sinnott's text messages. 
Peter happened to be at a medical conference at the time, and he consulted with other physicians about my condition. Many texts went back and forth, and basically Peter said this, 50% chance it's really nothing, a migraine event that will disappear and have no impact whatsoever on me at altitude. But the flip side is that if it is or was a TIA and reappears during my summit bid, I will die. He and the doctors suggested I remove myself from the summit team immediately. That afternoon, I was in base camp. Maybe I don't have as much of that stupid gene as I used to. So it's a gene that fades with age, perhaps? Do you have what it takes to climb Everest? What happens up there when someone climbs into the death zone? And what's more important is, after you listen to this episode, will you even want to climb Everest? Let's take a few facts into consideration. Let's take the 2019 season, the season I was there on the Chinese side, as an example. There were 11 total deaths on both sides of the mountain. The cause of nine of those deaths are listed rather ambiguously. Three of the climbers are listed to have died from altitude sickness, and the cause of death for six of them is listed as exhaustion during descent. And of those 11 deaths, six were climbers in their 50s or 60s, where the possibility of dying at altitude increases. What is going on at altitude, and how is the body responding to the extremes of the death zone? Here's my conversation with Peter Hackett, doctor of the death zone. We spoke in May of 2021 at the end of the Everest climbing season, during which time four deaths had been listed, two from exhaustion. Here's Peter Hackett. Well, that's the, that's the essence of it. Maybe that's the crux of the biscuit. It's like, you know, all these people now and you know mark sinnett talks the idea that you know back in the day you had to be kind of the young guy with a lot of talent and have an american alpine club or your alpine clubs you know backing and now it's guys who are you know in their 50s and have some money in the bank and they they want to live out their dream and so there's this new trend happening on everest and as we saw in 2019 people are just literally dropping dead. Yeah, we don't have a good explanation for a lot of these deaths very up high on the mountain. I mean, you have to keep the right perspective. The The chances of dying on Everest uh, for those that go above base camp is around 1% or so. And it's gotten better over the past decades and the success rate has gone up quite a bit. Although for people over 60, it's much more dangerous, uh, a much higher death rate, a much lower success rate. Mm-hmm. And for people without oxygen, much higher death rate, much lower success rate. So the last thing I'd recommend is anybody over 60 trying it without oxygen. That would really be a double whammy. <laughs> but, but what are these mysterious deaths? I mean, you know, you can explain ice fogs, crevasses, and avalanches, that, that sort of thing. But there's something that's going on when you get up on that summit day above 8,500 meters, even in, so there's a number of factors. Number one, if you run out of oxygen, okay, that's an easy explanation. 
you're not really a climate, you can't acclimatize that kind of altitude. And you've gotten only as high as you've gotten probably because you are on oxygen. And the oxygen, there's no question the oxygen makes you move faster, allows you to move faster, prevents frostbite and hypothermia. I mean, it, there's only one performance enhancing a drug because uh, the drug oxygen is listed as a drug by the FDA mm -hmm. and that's oxygen for huh. performance at high altitude. And if you run if you're depending on it and you run out, you could be in big trouble. I mean, I could list a lot of climbers that have died that way. Some very well-known ones, even back in the late seventies and eighties. But like recently in the last couple of weeks, these people dying of so-called exhaustion are on oxygen. As far as I know, we don't have all the details, but as far as I know, they didn't run out. Hmm. So what could be causing their deaths if they're using supplemental oxygen? Um, the Sherpas call it exhaustion. And there may indeed be an element of, even if you're on oxygen, you can certainly get exhausted. So let's say you're on uh, four liters oxygen uh, going towards the summit. Well, your body physiologically is more like at uh, 23,000 feet instead of 28,000 feet. Mm. And you can still get exhausted because you're putting in a 6,000 foot day, up 3,000 feet, up 3,000 feet down. And that can exhaust you even at sea level, right? Yeah. Especially if it's real windy and you're fighting the winds and it's real cold. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I'm sure it's a sudden cardiac event from the exertion and the uh, the low oxygen levels, despite the supplemental oxygen. I'm sure some of these males, especially, uh, have heart attacks. Mm. And you never know what it is. You know, they, but that's called sudden cardiac death. And that death is almost instant. So they just drop over dead. Mm. Whereas some of these other climbers, they sit down, they're still conscious, and then they can't get up. And... Uh, I mean, I can, I can relate to it from my own experience. I, was, I climbed solo from the South Call up to the summit and on the way down, and I had very little oxygen. I could only use one to two liters per minute because I was running low. And on the way down from the summit where I had, uh, where I fell down the Hillary step and barely survived, but eventually, because in those days there were no fixed lines or anything, then I had to go up to the South Summit in order to get over the South Summit and down to the South Call. Yeah. And uh, I was exhausted and I spent, it's quite an ordeal on the Hillary step. And uh, I knew I wanted to lay down and rest. And I knew if I did, I wouldn't get up. Oh. So, so I, can, I can relate to that kind of exhaustion. And I was on supplemental oxygen, but it was only like one liter a minute. Mm. And, um, so I, I, I didn't want to lay down. I, I didn't want to stop. And uh, it could be that some of these mysterious deaths are just, just that. Oh. So uh, without any autopsy material, we can't say what these mysterious deaths are. I call them mysterious because we, we really don't know. Yeah. And without a really clear story from the Sherpas or from their, their companions, a minute-to-minute -minute description of what happened, it's, it's, it's really hard to know. But if, it's, if they just keel over, it's, it has to be either their heart or a massive pulmonary embolus or a massive stroke. I mean, it has to be a circulatory problem. That's the only thing that kills you like that. 
Yeah, it, 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 you mentioned something earlier that is of note as well. And there's a lot more people on the mountain now who haven't, if you will, put the years in. And and one of the things that gave me a lot more confidence on Everest, say, even though in 2014 everything was cut short, but but in 2016 especially, is every time you go, you know, to say 25 or 26,000 feet, you learn something about how your body responds. And then you come back down. And then the next time you have that sensation, that feeling of like, I feel like I could die right now, you you're you're learning. And so I would get these feelings or sensations and go, oh, I know what happens to my body here. I, I this is I'm not well, I'm I, we're dying up there ultimately, I suppose. But I know that I can reach this this level and and survive. And so your experiential level allows you to kind of tag up a little bit more and more. Whereas uh, some of the people who are going to Everest haven't even done Denali. They're just going to Everest, popping the oxygen mask on, which they'd never worn before, and they don't know what those signs are. They don't even. They don't know. This is, I guess, this is how it feels. I just think that the experienced climbers uh, are less inclined to just drop dead because they they know the signs. Well. Uh- there, there's no question about the value of experience at, at extreme altitude, like in so many endeavors. You know, mm. airline pilots are trained over and over again to recognize the signs of hypoxia and know how to react to it. Climbers, that I mean, we've all had these experiences. The more experience we get, the more we know what we can handle, what we can't. The less likely we are to freak out yeah. if something goes wrong, because we go, we can say, "Oh, I've I've been in this situation before, and I pulled through okay." Yeah. yeah. There's no question. It's it's a unique experience climbing these very high altitudes uh, and getting hypoxic to that mm. to that degree. Uh, and someone without any experience doesn't know how it feels. Doesn't know how to pace themselves. Extremely important. Doesn't know how to match their breathing to their steps. Very important. Doesn't know how to breathe efficiently. Very important. I mean, my own opinion, I have a lot of people calling me that they want advice on climbing Everest with a, you know, their particular medical problem or how to stay alive on Everest. I always recommend a 7,000 meter peak first, mm. or at least a couple of 6,000 meter peaks. Uh, and that's, of course, that's the way, like you said, that's the way it always was in the old days. Mm. You wouldn't think of having somebody on Everest that hadn't done six or 7,000 meter peaks. Right. Um, it, it's a different clientele now. And, you know, they feel like, uh, some of them feel like, oh, well, I'm paying this much money. I'm going to have that many guides and that many Sherpas and so much oxygen and fixed lines all the way to the top. It doesn't matter if I don't have much experience, which may be true if everything's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the interesting thing, and in, in especially in 2016, where I encountered three gentlemen who lost their lives, um, I, I'm, I've taken a, a, an interest in what people think about climbing Everest who have zero experience of it, but they have a certainly have an amazingly powerful opinion about it. And so in one instance where I crossed paths with a gentleman who I deemed to be dead and beyond any help whatsoever, and he did die. 
um, there was an article written in the New York Times, and 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 I've I've maintained contact with the with the writer, but. He, he left out the sentence where I did my due diligence and spoke to two people that this guy was with who died. And he, did, he didn't put that in. I was like, are you guys, are you good? Because I just felt like we're just going to be dragging a dead body back down. And there's no, there's no sense in doing that. I felt satisfied that we made the right decision in that circumstance. Of course, I think about it every day. So I'm not saying that it didn't come with some um, kind of aftershock, if you will. But, but I, I think that people have no idea, even, even if it's roped up and a walk up, how hard it is physiologically, physically and mentally to climb at altitude, even if your oxygen is up to four liters a minute. I've always said Everest is really a physiological problem more than a climbing problem. So, yeah. you know, think about this for all, all the potential climbers out there. If the base camp of, if the base of Everest were in the fair weather range, say in Alaska and at sea level, you'd have an 11,500 foot climb. The summit would be 11,500 feet above sea level. That's the vertical from base camp to the summit. And it's not particularly a pretty mountain. <laughs> and it probably wouldn't even be, probably people wouldn't even bother with it, right? Mm -hmm. So what makes it really unique is, is the, the altitude, right? I mean, the winds could be just as bad on Denali as on Everest. The temperatures could be worse on Denali than on Everest or in Antarctica. I mean, what's, the only thing that's really unique about Everest is the altitude. And, the, and of course, it's the highest point in the world. So everybody wants, you know, so many people want that as a goal. Yeah. So if you were, now consider this. If you were to start from base camp, if you were well acclimatized at base camp at 17.5, or even if you weren't, but you flew in to base camp on oxygen, and you stayed on a high flow oxygen in some sort of bubble suit or some sort of apparatus that allow you to do that, it wouldn't be that difficult to go all the way up to the top and back down if your oxygen levels were the same as they were at sea level, if you had enough oxygen. Yeah. So you could do it, in a, it'd be an 11,500 foot climb, you could do it in a couple of days and you know that would be it. So <laughs> what's really, it really is a physiologic problem more than anything else. Mm. And some people can handle it without oxygen. They're genetically gifted that way. It's just a lottery, really. Yeah. Although training helps, of course. The, the more fit you are, the faster you can go up and down. But training doesn't help you with your acclimatization. It doesn't help you deal with the altitude. So there has been a lot of research on exactly what the what we call a mask altitude or what the physiologic altitude is at different levels on the mountain for those using supplemental oxygen. But if you're at rest on the South Call and you're just resting and you're breathing four liters per minute, your body thinks it's at about 10,000 feet. Wow. It's dramatic. Wow. But as soon as you start to move, your body requires much more, much more oxygen, of course. And then your oxygen levels will start to drop or you turn up the oxygen so that you can use more. So there is an enormous, people don't realize the enormous difference between climbing Everest with oxygen and without. Mm. I mean, I, 
it's almost like two different endeavors. It's almost like the difference between free diving and scuba diving. Huh, right, right. You know, and those people that climb without oxygen need to be given a lot of credit. But it's also much more dangerous and someone consider it foolhardy. So, but it's almost like a different sport, right? So anyhow, let's get back to the people climbing with oxygen, which is 95% of all the people. Yeah. Uh, it's dangerous to have to rely on an oxygen. Just like if you were scuba diving, you were at 150 feet and you suddenly ran out of air, you'd be in big trouble. It's not quite the same, obviously. But you, you, so you do need to take time to acclimatize so that you, you don't have to start on oxygen until you get to camp three. You don't wanna to have to start on at camp one or camp two, so that you have to require a period of acclimatization to get used to camp one and camp two. Mm -hmm. And then if you're acclimatized to camp two and you run out of oxygen at camp four on a soft call, you're not gonna die. You'll be able to tolerate it well enough to give you time to get down. Mm -hmm. So acclimatization is really, really important. People do have to recognize the signs of, of hypoxia. And there's certain uh, medications that can make you feel weird in a way that people have to be careful about their medication use. The hypoxia makes you more likely to get frostbite, more mm -hmm. susceptible to hypothermia. Uh, uh, I mean, there's a lot, it suppresses your ability to eat and drink, it suppresses your appetite. It, it interferes with your ability to sleep, which is a huge issue because mm -hmm. if you're sleep deprived, it throws off all sorts of physiological responses, including clear thinking. Mm -hmm. And then there's, we know from our, our research and many others that have done research that the brain just doesn't work quite as well. And once you get to about 18,000 feet, there's a bit of a threshold and the higher you go, the more off it, it becomes. So at camp two, before you start on oxygen, you may not be sleeping well, you may not be thinking real well, you may, need checklists, you may need somebody to remind you of what to take up to camp three. You may not be eating very well. And uh, for people that have never experienced that before, they, it's miserable. Mm, it, it is. <laughs> I, I, I think that the most important gene that in my experience for my own high altitude climbing is the stupid gene. <laughs> that is the ability to tolerate significant levels of discomfort over a long period of time, which is just plain stupid thing. To do. <laughs> right. And that, that's what's required for high altitude climbing. You have to be able to tolerate significant discomfort for more than a few hours, you know, for weeks at a time. Yeah. And uh, people that have never done that, it's, it's you know, they're, they're not used to that. And uh, they find it hard to tolerate sometimes. Yeah. Sheer madness. I know there's some like I, I think I I liked that aspect of it back in the day. And now I'm like, oh, you know, even in 2019, you know, I'm fi as I said, I'm 59 now in 2019. There were some uncomfortable times we were having. And I just thought like, what? Why? Why? Why am I doing this? Why am I doing this? Um, yeah, you certainly want to be have have gluttony uh, for punishment as part of your resume resume because it it is it's it's painful and it takes weeks and weeks to recover and 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 Peter this is the interesting thing after I came back in in 2019 and and you know as as you know I was leaving advanced base camp and Mark we read 
your your text and you s- said you had consulted with some other doctors and the the general consensus was that I should stay back and um, and that's good and, and you know I'd already been to the summit so you know what's the big deal uh, other than just wanting to be with my buddies but I will say when I came back from that expedition and this could be a factor of age a little bit but it took me months really months to even want to get off the couch and go for a, a hike. Months, months. It usually takes a few weeks and I just laze around and eat like a pig. But it it was a long, long recovery. And I'm not sure if there was some, it, it just, it maybe it was psychological a little bit. I was pretty depressed about it and worried until I got the MRI. But, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it packs a wallop and, and the people who go back time and time again, you, you got to wonder what the mental factor and the capacity is going to be when they are 70 or 80. If, if there's some little loss every time you go into altitude that, you know, doing a crossword puzzle gets harder every time, I think. But this whole issue of uh, brain damage at high altitude is a very important one and one that uh, needs to be researched more. Mm. But clearly, in the studies that have been done, uh, there are structural changes and there are functional changes in the brain at high altitude that can persist for months to years to many years after um, climbing to high altitude, mostly in those without oxygen or in those that develop uh, bad mountain sickness or cerebral edema. I'd say that for those that have been, I mean, the literature isn't great, but so far from what we can tell in the scientific literature, for those that go above 7,000 meters without oxygen, about 10 to 15% are going to have some sort of permanent neurologic finding. Now, if it's just a little blot on your MRI, but doesn't cause any functional changes, it doesn't matter much, but it's still a concern, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's been a functional, ch- uh, an anatomical change in your brain. Either a part of your brain has shrunk, there's a little bit of atrophy, or we get what's called white matter hyperintensities. It's this, these lesions we don't entirely understand, but if you get enough of them in a lifetime, it is associated with dementia. You know, people ask me all the time, is there any risk of suffering brain damage on Everest? The answer is yes. How big is the risk? The answer okay. is- I found this on the web. <laughs> They're listening to you. The, the answer is, it's really hard to say. Yeah. Uh, if, you're, if you think that every single neuron in your brain is really precious and you want to hang on to it, you should not go to Everest or any 8,000-meter peak. True. I mean, some studies say even 6,000-meter peaks, but I, um, I'm pretty skeptical of those, of those studies. Right. More importantly is the functional stuff. So the psychological, uh, neurocognitive reaction time, um, memory, um, after an ascent, there are abnormalities. Our Everest expedition, uh, the American Medical Research Expedition Everest many years ago showed that there were definite changes in them. Most of them resolved within two years, almost all of them, mm. except the ability to do repeated finger tapping. Hmm. If you get more fatigued, uh, really? You don't know what that means, except maybe concert pianists should be careful about 
So if you really want to protect your brain at high altitude, number one, you use oxygen. Uh, number two, you don't get altitude sickness, especially cerebral edema, but even pulmonary edema or even bad mountain sickness. Mm. Number three, well, to prevent those illnesses, you acclimatize well before you, mm. you go high. And fourthly, you pay attention to nutrition and hydration mm. and how you're feeling and don't push it beyond your means. So mm. a lot of climbers ask me, are there any meds or drugs that'll prevent the brain changes or neurologic damage at altitude? And there's really no evidence about a lot of these things you read about on the internet or over the counter stuff, or even prescription medicines like dexamethasone, which protects the brain quite a bit, mm. but no one's ever done a study to see if people who take dexamethasone on a summit day are less likely to have brain damage. I mean, it's hard to imagine that study like that ever being done. I, it would be pretty hard to do it. You'd have to have a lot of willing subjects, I would imagine. And uh, but Can you imagine in any university medical school IRB signing off on a project where they're going to take people to 28,000 feet without oxygen and see oh. how they're going to do <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Maybe 1950s military or something like yeah, exactly. top secret, you know. Exactly. Well, funny you should mention that because Operation Everest One in 1947 with Charlie Houston, that's yeah. what they did. 40 days in an altitude chamber to the summit of Everest without oxygen. And then Operation Everest Two in 1985, very similar thing. Uh, and they did look at neurologic function and there were some... Um, huh deficits, but yeah, you know, then you've got people like Tom Hornbein that bivouacked at 28,000 feet without oxygen and ended up running an anesthesia department, you know. And he's in his 90s now. And he's in his 90s now, yeah. So, Amazing. Uh, you know, it's something I think people should seriously consider if yeah. you're going to do an 8,000 meter peak. There um, is a risk. Are you, is, is the Institute for Altitude Medicine still, like when I say still, is it, would one of the functions of it be somebody, let's just say I come along, I'd never been to Everest, I've climbed Denali or been up Aconcagua and I'm like, wow, man, I, I, I want to make sure that I'm doing this right. Would I theoretically go there and kind of go through a, a, with no guarantees for success, obviously, but would you put me through a little, you know, kind of a litany of tests and consult with me about what my chances or physical health was? Well, uh, <clears throat> it's a little embarrassing, but that's what I would have done yeah. when, I, when I was operating the Institute for Altitude Medicine. But now I've phased out into mm. uh, the Altitude Research Center at the University of Colorado in Denver. Mm. And um, I'm, I'm kind of quasi-retired. But uh, what I do now with, uh, with people that want to do exactly what, what you're saying is I can generally uh, handle most of this virtually and arrange for tests in their own hometown, a certain kind of tests. Um, but sometimes we will have people come to Denver, put them in an altitude chamber if they have a particular issue like, like a seizure disorder or something or something funny has happened at altitude before that isn't clear we might want to put them in the chamber and take them up there and see if we can provoke what happened to figure it out what it was. Or like people with migraine events or TIAs, like what, like what you might've had. Mm. Uh, we might take you up to 7,000 meters in the chamber and monitor your brain waves and your heart rate and everything else and, mm. and see what's going on. 
but those are, are fairly unique events, not, not common. So most people that are reasonably fit or well fit and reasonably healthy uh, can, can do Everest with oxygen. And uh, that includes diabetics, people with uh, high blood pressure that's well controlled, even people that have had coronary bypass surgery have gone to the summit of Everest, even people with heart transplants. I mean, yeah, it's most problems can be dealt with. The only problems that really you have to be very careful about are lung disease. And mm -hmm. most of those people with lung diseases uh, aren't, aren't going to high altitude. How about COVID? What if you had COVID and were sick? Well, you know, Sherpa just submitted this week after he had had COVID. Really? Wow. Uh, but if you had COVID pneumonia and you were in an ICU or you were on a ventilator, uh, the last thing you want to do is challenge yourself at high altitude for the next few months at least. Yeah. And you'd want to get some pulmonary function testing before going to high altitude. Yeah. And what I do with most medical conditions or a lot of them is out. I'll advise people to check things out at a lower altitude then gradually increase the altitude. So if you want to go to Everest and you've got stable, well, let's, let's say high blood pressure or diabetes mm -hmm. or um, uh, heart arrhythmia. Well, maybe before you go to Everest, uh, you should go on a trek in Nepal or you should come out to Pikes Peak Mm -hmm. or you should climb Rainier, or you should go to Denali. You should get, get up to around 14 to 16 to 17,000 feet and see how you do, monitor your condition and learn about your condition at altitude and how, you re how it responds to high altitude. Mm -hmm. And then if everything is going fine or we work out a plan, how to manage things, then you can go to Everest. Yeah. That, that is successful most of the time. So do you still want to climb Everest? Do you think you could? And would you be willing to take the risks? Let me know your thoughts. I'd love to hear them. And what happened to me in 2019 when I experienced the symptoms of a TIA on Everest? Well, it's hard to say. Peter told me that a TIA might be something akin to a blood vessel spasm that goes away. It never really gets to the point of being an obstructed blood vessel, which would be a stroke. Whether what happened to me would ever recur is unknown. At my age, I think I'm happy to leave my high altitude career in the rear view mirror, thanks to the insight and friendship of Dr. Peter Hackett. Peter is now quasi-retired, as he said. He raises yaks at his home in western Colorado. Oh, and he's also been the tour doctor for the Rolling Stones. I'm not kidding. The man is a rock star in his own right, and not just for the people going to Mount Everest. I'll leave some links in the show notes about where you can find Dr. Hackett and a link to one of his lectures called Altitude Illness, What You Need to Know. Peter, thanks so much. I appreciate it. And as always, thank you to the Wood Brothers and their management for the use of their song, Happiness Jones, for our theme song here on the Happiness Quotient. And to their publicist, Kevin Calabro, for helping make it all happen. Yeah, happy.
For more information about me, Tom Dharma Pollard, to inquire about personal coaching or public speaking in person or virtually, please visit me at eyesopenproductions.com and write me anytime at tom.dharma.pollard at gmail.com. I'd love to hear your thoughts about this or any of the episodes that you listen to. Thank you for visiting The Happiness Quotient. I will see you all real soon.